feel a little bit like I'm 10 years old again or something now I'm here, but behind the big collector. So last night, Steve spoke some about the three trainings on the Noble Eightfold Path. The training in sila, skillful conduct, the practice of restraint, and samadhi, skillful concentration in meditation, and panya, the training in right understanding and wisdom, and how through the development of these elements, we gradually move along the path that leads away from wrong views, those kinds of understandings that lead towards suffering, and towards right views, that wisdom and way of understanding things that leads us away from suffering and towards greater peace and happiness in our lives. And I want to continue to expand on that subject a little bit more tonight, because as Steve said, it does matter how we think about this practice. It does matter how we think about the path, because our ideas and understanding of the practice will greatly influence how we, how we approach it, how we engage with it the quality of sincerity and effort and appreciation that we bring to it. And about a decade ago, at the end of one of my stays in Burma, after I'd finished up a period of practice, I met a Buddhist nun who was passing through Rangoon and she was staying at Panditarama, the center where I had been practicing. And we kind of hit it off and got friendly and we're talking. And one day she said to me, oh, you have to come and meet my teacher. He's so great, you've got to come and meet him. And it turned out that the next day she was going to be moving across town to a different practice center, one run by another one of the senior Sayadas, the senior meditation masters who had been trained by Mahasi Sayada. And one of the staff people was going to drive her over, and I could come along if I wanted. And I didn't think too much about it. Um, it's pretty common after a period of practice in Burma to kind of go around and make the rounds and visit different temples and monasteries and meet different teachers and monks and just kind of see what's going on and what they have to say. But when um, I went downstairs the next, the next day to meet the car that was going out to this other center, it turns out that it was a van and there was this small group of people from the, the center where I was staying that were assembled to go over to, to see this other teacher, including the very venerable elder Sayadaw who was running the center at the time while Sayadu Pandita was out of town. So I thought, hmm, this is something a little different going on here. And we all got inside of the van and we drove about 45 minutes over to this other center outside of town. And we went over to the Sayadaw's house and we took off our shoes and the Sayadaw that was with us knocked on the door and it was opened and we filed in. And the atmosphere inside of that room was really like nothing that I had ever experienced in my life or anything that I've ever experienced since. It was like diving into this pool of just utter stillness and tranquility, as if the air was thick with peace. It was like I could almost feel it on my skin. It gave me goosebumps. And the Sayadaw that we were visiting there inside the room was not particularly impressive physically. In fact, it was quite the opposite. He was just this very thin, very old, kind of wizened little Burmese monk. And he didn't smile or frown or really have any identifiable expression at all. And yet somehow he exuded this air of just complete softness, complete gentleness, complete receptivity, as if there was nothing in him that was resisting anything at all. And later on, I found out that this was Shui Umin Sayadaw, the Golden Cave Sayada, who had been Mahasi Sayada's senior disciple and was also the teacher of Utejaniya, who is now Steve's teacher and perhaps some of yours as well. And it was rumored among those that were familiar with him that Shui Umin Sayada was an arahant, a fully enlightened being. So we paid our respects to him and we offered him some food and some other supplies that we'd brought along as Donna to help support his teaching in his center. And then we had just a little bit of conversation with him and he didn't say a whole lot. But one thing that he said to my nun friend really stuck with me and has stayed with me all these years. He asked her just very simply, are you satisfied with your practice? 
And she reflected for a few moments, and then she said that no, she wasn't satisfied with her practice. And Shui Umin Sayada just nodded just a little bit, and he said, good. He said, if you're satisfied with your practice, then you won't continue. And the Buddha, too, gave the same teaching to his students. And Steve touched on this last night, that there are all sorts of benefits that can come from this practice, from the very mundane to the most lofty. But if we feel satisfied with the lesser, more mundane aspects of the practice, the more mundane benefits, maybe thinking, oh, well, you know, this must be all this practice really has to offer. Or maybe thinking, you know, well, this is probably really as much as I'm just capable of getting out of it, that kind of thing. Then those thoughts can become a hindrance. They can keep us from persevering, from looking deeper, from aiming higher, and ultimately from realizing the fullness of the potential of this path for ourselves. On another trip that I made to Burma after finishing up another period of practice, I went to visit this one temple in Mandalay that has a reputation as being a good place to buy Buddha images carved out of teak, a nice place to get statues. So not knowing much about teak carving, I asked some of my Burmese acquaintances if they had any suggestions for how to pick out a statue. And the main thing that they all said was to be sure to get one that was carved from heartwood, which is the very center of the trunk of the tree, the heart of the tree. It's the densest part, which has the finest grain. And they said that that would be stronger and take a better finish, that it would be resistant to changes in temperature and humidity, unlike the outer part of the trunk, which can chip and crack. And that if I lifted up the statue and kind of looked at the base of it, then I'd be able to see the cross section of the piece of wood that it was carved from and check to make sure that it was all the very uh, dense, dark heartwood. So this was my introduction to the concept of heartwood and its merits. That if you want to make something out of wood that's really strong and durable, or something that's very refined and beautiful, then you need the heartwood. And this is something that would have been, I assume, a matter matter of kind of common knowledge in the Buddhist time. And so the Buddha at one time gave a teaching called the Discourse on the Simile of the Heartwood which addresses this issue of becoming kind of prematurely satisfied with our practice. And in this teaching, the Buddha compares spiritual life to a great tree standing in the forest, like the great Bodhi tree that he sat under on the night of his enlightenment, or maybe like the venerable trees that live here on this property. And he compared the spiritual seeker to someone needing to build something strong and durable something that will hold up over time and under adverse conditions. And he said that just as a great tree has many different components and layers, so too is it in spiritual life. And just as we need the heartwood if we want to build something really strong and durable from wood, if we want to build a really strong, durable spiritual life, then we need to seek out the heartwood of the practice and not be satisfied with anything less not be satisfied with anything less than the genuine heartwood. When we first take up some kind of spiritual practice, the initial benefits that we see just quite naturally tend to be fairly superficial. You know, that's very natural. And the Buddha refers to these kinds of superficial benefits by the catchphrase of gain, honor, and renown. And these are the aspects of our practice that provide us with personal gratification of one sort or another. And in particular, with gratification of the senses, or gratification of what in the West we call the ego. So in modern jargon these days, we call this spiritual materialism. In the Buddhist time, as today in many traditional societies, there were many practical reasons for entering into a particular spiritual practice or path. So a person who is ordained as a monk or nun would be provided for by the community. And in Buddhist countries today, there are many people who still ordain because they're, just because they're sick or they're hungry, and it's simply the only option for taking care of themselves. 
it may be a way to get an education for a lot of people that might not otherwise have access or to move up the social ladder from a lower position. And this was and is seen as a real reward of spiritual life by many people. As lay people practicing in the West, though, the material benefits of our spiritual life tend to be a little bit more esoteric. Most of us don't come on retreat to uh, fill our bellies. So they generally take the form of pleasant sense experiences that are available to us through our practice. You know, there may be beautiful buildings, architecture, art. There may be lovely music and chanting, candles and incense. There may be, you know, special clothing, jewelry, you know, ritual items and props that we can acquire. And even here, where there's not a whole lot of bells and whistles to entertain us, there's still many simple pleasures all around us. And we all have experienced this, just the beauty of the natural world here the land, the plants and animals that are around us, the simple elegance of this hall and all of the lovely little shrines that are scattered around here and there, that brilliant full moon that's been shining on us while we've been here, or the blue sky today. And because we're quiet and attentive, we may find that we're able to appreciate and enjoy these sense pleasures in a really a very special and keen way. So this is the form of gain that most of us here encounter, this enjoyment of pleasant sense experiences associated with the practice. The rewards of honor and renown refer to the ego gratification that's potentially available to us through our practice. Again, in traditional Buddhist cultures, there's often great respect given to people who are seen as particularly devout or learned you know, especially the ordained monks receive a lot of reverence, but also in some places nuns or lay people who cut a particularly impressive figure devote a lot of time to the practice. You know, if they exude serenity, sense of benevolence, or if they offer profound teachings, then their reputation might spread and they might even acquire a following of people that are eager to provide for their needs and sing their praises. And this is something, too, that was and is seen as a real reward of spiritual life by many people. As lay people practicing in the West, the honor and renown available to most of us tends to be more understated. But it's still present in different forms. So some of us may move in social circles where being a meditator or being a Buddhist uh, is a little bit sexy, you know, has a certain elan. Or if we participate in a spiritual community, then coming to a retreat like this might give us a certain status, a certain respect or authority. But perhaps more importantly, honor and renown can also be generated internally. So even if those around us are maybe not too excited about our practice, we may still find that our own sense of being a meditator, or being a yogi, being a Buddhist, being a spiritual person, helps us to feel good about ourselves. It gives us an, an identity that we like, that we enjoy. So to the extent that we're admired or admire ourselves for our practice, this can be a source of gratification in spiritual life. I remember experiencing a little bit of this uh, as a nun in Burma when I first ordained. It was uh, the time of the rains retreat during the summer monsoon season which is a traditional time to make big offerings at the monasteries. So like companies or extended families may come and just make these very lavish offerings. That's like having you know, a wedding or bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah reception at the monastery every day. You know, imagine practicing through that <laughs> compared to the little hum from the, the speakers. And as a foreign yogi who was in robes, a relatively young one, um, I was made a big fuss of during these events. So these beautiful women, you know, in, in gorgeous silks and just made up to perfection, perfumed flowers in their hair, would come around and, you know, serve me my food and wait on me, you know, ask me if I needed anything. Sometimes they would even come and kind of sit by me and fan me, keep the flies <laughs> off of me while I ate. <laughs> and at first it was a little weird, you know, it took a little while to get comfortable with this, but after a while I started to realize that this was actually kind of nice, you know. <laughs> 
So these kinds of benefits are nice, but they're obviously, you know, pretty superficial because they really just involve enjoying the gratification of our senses and our egos in, in more or less the same way that we're already used to. So they're not really moving us towards a different relationship with our experience. They're just kind of extending our same way of relating and being into our spiritual life. And yet the Buddha didn't say that these superficial rewards are bad or that we need to avoid them or condemn them in any way. In fact, he said that we're bound to encounter them in some form or another at some time or another as we go about our practice. And they have their place in practice, actually, as a support for going deeper. You know, there are times when just mindfully sitting in the sun or walking through the woods can help to brighten the mind so that we can carry on when things get difficult. And there are times when a certain amount of concern for our image or reputation may get us onto the cushion or into the hall when we'd really just rather be in bed. What the Buddha did say is that if we're satisfied with these superficial aspects of the practice, if we don't aspire to anything more, then they can become a big distraction, really keeping us from going deeper, from tasting the substantial rewards that are available. The Buddha said that it's possible for one to become intoxicated with gain, honor, and renown, and grow negligent, fall into negligence, and being negligent to live in suffering. He said that someone who's satisfied in this way is like a person needing heartwood and finding a great tree in the forest who took just the leaves and the twigs, thinking that they were really heartwood. So this is something to be aware of. You know, if we think about it or if someone asks us, we wouldn't say that these are the things that we're after in our practice. You know, we're not here just to look at the birds and the ferns. We're not here to convince a room full of people that we're really fabulous meditators. And yet, at times, <laughs> we may lose our perspective. So it's worth asking ourselves, does that time spent sitting by the pond really help us to be more aware? Or is there a simple craving for sense pleasure behind it? Is staying just right with the breath really what's most support supportive of our practice at a particular time? Or are we enjoying the feeling of being a good yogi that it might give us? And if we find that we are craving pleasure or approval, then can we bring that into the field of our awareness? Can we turn the light of our mindfulness just right onto that craving itself and make it something else to explore, to learn about, to experience? Any time that we find ourselves kind of lost in the leaves and twigs of practice, we can come right back down to earth just by noticing what's going on. Same instruction. If we can recognize and open to spiritual materialism when it crops up, then we won't be satisfied with those superficial rewards. We won't be content to just keep chasing after the gratification that it promises. We'll start to bring it right into our practice, being mindful of those deeply conditioned tendencies that crave pleasure and approval. And because of this, our practice will inevitably deepen. And the Buddha described this deepening in this way. He said, one is not pleased with gain, honor, and renown and their intention is not fulfilled by it. One does not grow negligent and fall into negligence. Instead, being diligent, one achieves the attainment of sila. And again, the practice of sila refers to paying attention to our way of behaving in the world, how we speak and how we act, and doing our best whenever possible to speak and act from a place of kindness, of not wishing to cause harm to ourselves or others. And if we practice with sincerity, at some point we're going to recognize for ourselves the importance of sila, even if it's not something that we were initially too concerned with. I know that this was the case for me when I first came to this practice. I wasn't really thinking about my behavior, my conduct in the world. I wanted to learn how to meditate. You know, I wanted to experience deep states of bliss, altered consciousness, all that kind of thing. And yet, it often happens in this way. You know, we start going to a meditation class, or we come on retreat, we get the basic instructions, we try to pay attention to what the mind is up to, 
And what do we notice almost immediately? The mind is a mess. <laughs> it wanders all over the place, out of control. It's constantly falling into the grip of petty passions and squabbles. And a huge amount of the time, we're just not really present and don't even know what's going on. And for almost everyone, when we first see this, it's, it's an unpleasant shock. It's an unpleasant surprise. And we start to marvel, you know, perhaps with no small amount of dismay, that this is how we're walking around in our lives most or all of the time. And not only that, but that we're making our decisions and acting out of this jumble of confusion and obsession. So just very naturally, very intuitively, we start to pay closer attention to what we're doing and why. And it may be very small ways at first, and we may not even be aware of it at first. But at some point or another, it's bound to dawn on us the choices that we make matter. And we're no longer content to just fumble through life, being pushed and pulled by our, our desires, our passing whims. And I know that many of you here are very committed to your practice of sila. Whether or not you think about it in those terms, many of us are grappling with really big and important questions about how to be in the world skillfully, how to live well, how to respond to the challenges that we're encountering with wisdom and compassion. And these are really important questions to consider. It can be tremendously beneficial to bring awareness and wise intention into our activities in the world. And we also have to remember that these efforts are only part of the bigger picture of spiritual life. And according to the Buddha, not even the deepest part. In his metaphor of the great tree of the Dharma, the Buddha compares the practice of sila to the outer bark of spiritual life which in a way is apt because it's the visible part. It's the visible expression of our practice. But as great as the benefits of sila can be, they're actually only the very tip of the iceberg of what's possible on this path, which is actually a really impressive assertion. You know, I think it says something about the extraordinary depth and potential of this practice that a more skillful life, in a way, is kind of the least of the benefits that we can expect from it. But just as with the more superficial rewards of practice that we may find through gain, honor, and renown, it's also possible to actually get preoccupied with our practice of sila so that we lose track of the deeper purpose of this practice. So we can fall into thinking that the point of our practice is to somehow become better people. As Steve described last night, we can end up relating to our practice as a self-improvement program and that everything that we're doing here is designed to serve that end. And again, it's not that it's wrong to take great care in our practice of sila or to cherish the rewards that it brings. In fact, it's perfectly appropriate to do so. The Buddha highly recommended reflecting on our sila as a source of wholesome self-confidence, wholesome self-esteem, and great joy. And there are great benefits for ourselves and others that can come from our practice of sila but we don't want to lose sight of the greater benefits that are possible because we're so focused on concerns about how to live our lives and how to conduct ourselves in the world. And the Buddha calls a person who's too focused on the practice of sila, one who has taken the outer bark of spiritual life and stopped short with that. And he says that when this happens, one becomes intoxicated with the attainment of moral discipline, grows negligent, falls into negligence, and being negligent lives in suffering. Which, again, is an interesting assertion that even if we're putting a lot of energy, a lot of atten attention into living more skillfully, we're still bound to suffer if we don't also continue to do the powerful inner work, the work that's necessary for real transformation of our hearts and minds. So if we recognize that the practice of sila is only one part of spiritual life, and that we also need to address the root problem and take a look at the mental states that are driving our activity in the world, then we'll also find time in our lives for meditation. And because of this, our practice will inevitably deepen.
And the Buddha described this deepening in this way. One is pleased with the attainment of moral discipline, but their intention is not fulfilled by it, and they do not fall into negligence. Instead, being diligent, one achieves the attainment of samadhi. And the samadhi is an interesting word. Steve spoke about it some last night, and it's often translated as concentration, but it also means tranquility or calm. And actually, there's a direct link between all of those. A concentrated mind is still and tranquil, and a calm mind is concentrated and focused. So one meaning really implies the other. And what's meant by samadhi here is the calming or stilling of difficult states of mind, which are often cataloged in the list of the traditional hindrances, the five hindrances. So that's craving, aversion, low energy, restlessness, and doubt. Kind of covers all the basis, difficult mental states. And one reason that they're called hindrances is that they hinder concentration. They keep us from experiencing enough mental calm to just be able to be present with our actual experience in the moment. So this aspect of practice called samadhi is about quieting those difficult states of mind, temporarily bringing them to rest. Once we start meditating and see what a mess is going on in our minds, then the desire naturally arises to calm things down, to be able to enjoy a little mental peace and quiet. You know, we've all felt this urge. And it's very natural and universal. And it's what leads us to this next deeper aspect of practice, which is to develop our meditation skills to the point where we can cultivate some mental discipline to go along with the behavioral discipline that's cultivated through sila. And this is called samadhi bhavana, the development of tranquility or concentration. So we learn some kind of meditation practice, and we develop our skills, and we cultivate samadhi. And lo and behold, we start to experience some periods of rest in the midst of all the wanderings of the mind. It may be just a moment here and there, a few moments, or it may eventually be quite long periods, periods of peace and calm, where the body is comfortable and relaxed. And the mind is also comfortable and relaxed. And we can just rest in the flow of what's happening in the present moment. And often we're pointing you towards this kind of condition in the instructions that we give, pointing you towards inclining the mind towards this kind of calm and tranquility. And for some of us, as concentration strengthens, we may also start to have some quite unusual or dramatic experiences. And some of you may have experience with this. You know, we might see lights or visions or have a sense of floating or rocking. There can be altered perceptions of the body or of the environment around us, spontaneous movements of the body, kind of energetic releases. And some of these odd effects may actually be kind of unpleasant, but there's still a sense of excitement or interest that's associated with them. They still hold us very much in the present moment. But however concentration manifests for us, when it really starts to gain momentum, it feels very different from our ordinary experience. That's kind of the, the distinguishing feature of it. Whether it's peaceful and calm or kind of dramatic and exciting, it's very clear that this is something that's quite different from our ordinary way of being. And samadhi has many benefits. There's a great sense of ease and delight that in and of itself, while we're in the experience, is, is beneficial. There's the ability to, to apply the mind and really connect with our present experience, which is another benefit. And the Buddha, um, in his teachings, praised samadhi repeatedly and enthusiastically, really. It seemed like he couldn't say enough good things about it. And yet he said that even this is not the goal of spiritual life, not the heartwood. He said that a person who is satisfied with the attainment of concentration is like one who has taken the inner bark of spiritual life and stopped short with that.
Samadhi is a notoriously seductive aspect of spiritual life. Once we get a taste of peace and quiet in our minds, it's so hard not to want more. It's practically inevitable that we'll want more. It's just so much more pleasant than coping with all the physical discomfort, the obsessive thoughts, the painful emotions. For many of us, it may be the most thoroughly enjoyable experience that we've ever had in the entirety of our lives. Far better, far more refined than any kind of sense pleasure that's available to us. So it's very tempting to think, oh, this is it. This is what it's about. This is the goal. This is the heartwood. Our teacher Upandita calls this view fake nirvana. You know, we can really believe that we found the answer, that we've tasted enlightenment, liberation even. Even before we've experienced it, we can fall into mistakenly thinking that this is the goal of spiritual life. Because the only way that we've ever known of escaping suffering is to replace it with some kind of pleasure. So we imagine that the goal of this practice is to have pleasant experiences of peace and bliss as much as possible, continuously if possible. That's why we tend to fall into evaluating the merit of our meditation based on how pleasant it is. For most of us, a good sitting means one that was pleasant. A good retreat means one that was mostly pleasant. The problem with this, which we realize very quickly once we start having these kinds of experiences, is that they don't last. They may bring freedom from suffering, but only temporarily. And so we get hooked on them. So rather than running after the next pleasant sense experience, we just switch to running after the next pleasant meditative experience. We're elated when it comes, we're distraught when it doesn't. You know, there's nothing like a good sitting to ruin the rest of your day. So we feel let down after a good sitting or a good retreat. We think, oh, it didn't work or I failed because we couldn't hang on to that nice feeling and make it last. But it's really just simply the nature of samadhi to come and go with conditions. It's a highly conditioned state. It's dependent on us doing very particular things with our mind over and over again to cultivate that quality of concentration in the mind. So we can't really say that samadhi solves our fundamental problem of suffering. And this is why the Buddha compared the attainment of samadhi, as wonderful as it is, to just the inner bark of spiritual life. And he said that a person who is satisfied with the pleasure of samadhi is pleased with the attainment of concentration, and their intention is fulfilled. They become intoxicated with the attainment of concentration, grow negligent, fall into negligence, and being negligent, they live in suffering. And we can see how this is when we're chasing after that next hit of samadhi. There's a lot of suffering involved in that. But again, the experience of samadhi in itself is not the problem. It's wonderful, so long as we don't get distracted by it and stop looking deeper. But the fact is that most of us do get entranced by it to some degree, at least for a while. And this is really a natural part of the path. So we don't need to panic if we see that we're searching for that next great hit of samadhi in our practice. As with everything else, all we need to do is become aware of that, to bring that craving right into our practice, into our field of awareness, as just another experience to be known, investigated, and understood. I got a very... uh, strong illustration of this at one point in my practice. This was again practicing in Burma. And I'd been at this one center early on in my practice for a couple of months and been working very hard to train the attention, uh, keeping it on the breath was the instruction at the time. And it was really hard settling in, getting over a lot of culture shock, adjusting to the different schedule, the different food, the different climate. It was just really difficult. But I was making a very strong effort, and after a while, my samadhi began to pick up. The mind did begin to collect itself. And I began to see this beautiful white light, (laughs) which is not anything particularly unusual. It's a very common phenomenon. 
but just it was it would got to a point where it was always there. I'd sit down on the cushion, I'd close my eyes, and poof, there'd be this just brilliant white light, completely entrancing. And I'd go in and report to my teacher what was happening, and he'd just kind of say, hmm. <laughs> try harder. <laughs> so I'd go and I'd sit and pay more attention to the breath, try harder, try my hardest. More white light, more white light. Day after day, I was going in and reporting just the same thing over and over again. And my teacher was saying basically the same thing to me over and over again. And after this has gone on for a few weeks, I came in one day and made my same report, bright light, bliss. And he just looked at me and he said, so where do you think this is getting you? And it kind of, the light bulb went off over my head. Where is this getting me? You know, what's going to happen when I get up from the cushion and have to go back to my ordinary life? So I started then to be mindful of it, to notice the light just as seeing light, notice the bliss, the feelings of lightness, joy in the body. And after a while, my practice moved on to another stage. So if we're diligent and we continue to be mindful of all the thoughts and feelings that come up around our experiences of samadhi, then at some point we'll realize that the freedom from suffering that the Buddha talked about does not mean having a continuous stream of pleasant experiences, either sensual or meditative. And that's really a major turning point on the path, when we stop chasing after gratification from the practice and just apply ourselves to seeing what's really going on, just right now, in our hearts, minds, and bodies. Ironically, once we make this shift in focus, once we kind of get over the allure of samadhi, samadhi tends to increase. Not that the mind necessarily stops wandering, but there may be more and longer periods of calm. Enough calm in the mind that we can start to see things as they really are. The Buddha says that being diligent, one achieves knowledge and vision. Where the phrase knowledge and vision is a way of referring to what we call insight here. This is a term for insight. And insight, in this sense, refers specifically to seeing the three universal characteristics of our experience, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. That all experiences are impermanent, anicca. They're fleeting, evanescent, ephemeral. That all of our experience are, experiences are dukkha, that none of them have the ability to provide us with lasting satisfaction because they don't last themselves. And that all of our experiences are impersonal, anatta, arising and passing due to all sorts of causes and conditions which we can't even fathom, let alone control. This insight develops gradually, just beginning with brief glimpses and eventually leading to longer and longer periods of directly experiencing these truths. So it's much like moving through the rings of a tree, an old tree, moving towards the center, towards the core, seeing deeper and deeper layers. Some yogis have compared it to peeling an onion. And some of those layers are blissful. There can be tremendous relief, like a load has been lifted off of our shoulders, feeling like we don't have to take it all so seriously, so personally. And some of those layers may be dis distressing too, feeling like a rug has been pulled out from under our feet, that everything we thought and thought we knew and understood is really falling apart, crumbling around us. And some of those layers may be equanimous, where we can meet these truths just with a very deep calm and acceptance, just really resting in their immediacy, their clarity. And as we move through layer after layer, ring after ring on this great tree, there's a tendency also to keep thinking, oh, now I've got it. And this was something else also that I dealt with in my own practice. On the first uh, three-month retreat that I attended at, at IMS, I remember sitting in the early weeks and just for the first time in my life, really seeing a thought pass through my mind and getting that it was completely out of my control. It had just arisen, played out, and ended completely of its own accord. And I'd seen many thoughts come and go, but there's something just about this particular moment that had that quality of insight about it. I really got it on a visceral level. Oh, it's not me, it's not I, it's not mine. 
it's not myself. And I thought, now I've got it. <laughs> I've got it. I got this insight thing they're always talking about. <laughs> Until a while, while later, I had another experience like this. And it was clearer. It was more convincing than the first one. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I thought I had it. But now, now I've really got it. Now I've really seen it. And it took quite a few experiences of insight over and over again like this before I started to get that there's just a lot to get. There's a lot of rings. There's a lot of layers. That insight unfolds gradually, just one step at a time. And until we're completely free from suffering, there's no way that we can really say that we've got it. So we watch our experiences constantly changing. We watch our, our pleasant experiences disappear without leaving us with any lasting sense of satisfaction. We watch experiences arising in the mind and the body without our invitation or our control. And by seeing this over and over again, we come to deeply know the truth of these characteristics of reality. And it's not on an intellectual level at this point, but instinctively, intuitively, in our bones. It's kind of like the way that we know the law of gravity. You know, when we walk down the steps, we don't have to think about, oh, well, the force of gravity is going to act on my body in such and such a way, so I have to move my limbs in this way so that I don't fall and catch myself here. We just know it intuitively. We've had enough experience with, with that natural law that we have an intuitive sense, an instinctive sense of how it operates. And similarly, as our insight deepens, we automatically move through life more and more in tune with the natural laws of the way things are, the natural laws of the way things are in the mind. So we develop increasing equanimity about life's ups and downs. We stop expecting experience to play out in ways that are not consistent with what we know to be true. We stop expecting things to last or to give lasting gratification. And we stop taking everything so personally. And all of this leads to a deeper, subtler, and more pervasive sense of ease and peace in our lives than the relatively short episodes of tranquility that come from samadhi. So it provides a much stronger and more reliable refuge from suffering than samadhi or sila. And yet the Buddha said that even this benefit of spiritual life is not the goal of this practice. He said that one who is satisfied with knowing and seeing things as they truly are is one who has taken the sapwood of spiritual life and stopped short with that. So there's something still to be gained, still to be realized, even beyond this. So how can that be? It's because for a long time, the quantity and quality of insight and equanimity that we can access as a result of our practice fluctuates. So at times it may be quite strong and reliable. You know, difficulties arise and we can draw on the strength of our practice for balance, for peace. But at other times, depending on conditions, it may wane. Something happens and catches, up, catches, up, catches us off guard, or it's particularly dramatic. We can't quite connect with the insight that we developed, and so we fall into suffering again. With time and practice, our insight will become more stable, more reliable, and more profound. And yet we may still encounter suffering that it doesn't protect us from. So even knowing and seeing deep truths through insight can't provide us with a completely reliable refuge from suffering. So if we don't rest on our laurels as we gain insight through our practice, then it will continue to deepen. Each time we sit, each retreat, each moment that we're mindful as we move through our lives, we get the message of the three characteristics more and more powerfully, more clearly, on subtler and subtler levels. Until finally we get it so clearly, so powerfully, that it's impossible ever to forget. It's impossible to ever fall away from that wisdom. It becomes our constant companion that accompanies us everywhere. We know the truth of things so deeply that we develop unshakable equanimity and we're unable to ever truly suffer again. And this is what the Buddha called perpetual emancipation. 
complete enlightenment, liberation from all suffering. And this is the heartwood of the practice. <coughs> this is what is the heartwood of spiritual life. So it's tempting to use this simile to try to evaluate, well, where am I? Or how am I doing in my practice? You know, have I got to samadhi yet? Or have I got to this knowing and seeing thing yet? But generally, we found that this is not so useful. And it's mainly because spiritual life doesn't progress in this nice, neat, linear fashion, as we all know. One interesting teaching that I found in uh, Mahasi Sayadaw's big meditation manual, the one that Steve has been working on for a long time and, and that I helped him out with a little bit, is that in the ancient commentaries on the Buddha's discourses, there's a distinction that's made between what's called teaching order and what's called practice order. So in the suttas, we tend to find lots of lists and sequential progressions like this one. You know, there's these seven things that happen, or this happens, and then that, and then the other. But the commentaries, which date back to the very early days of this tradition, point out that the teachings are presented like this in the suttas just simply to make them clearer and easier to memorize. Because this was an oral tradition for centuries, it had to be easy to memorize and pass down from generation to generation. But that doesn't mean that spiritual practice actually develops along these nice, neat, clearly defined lines in real life. And even in the early days of this tradition, apparently, there was this problem of people taking the kind of the organization of these teachings too literally and losing sight of their practical application. So the commentaries remind us that there's this nice, neat order in the suttas for teaching purposes, but in practice, things don't work like that. And we've all seen this. So for example, all of these aspects of spiritual life can come into play right here just in a single meditation period. We may come into the hall here and really feel delighted with the atmosphere. You know, it's clean, it's neat, it's quiet, it's peaceful. There's the beautiful artwork up front here. Maybe there's sunshine or birdsong coming in from outside. We might feel uplifted and inspired by the sight of the altars or the quiet, mindful yogis sitting around us. And that's all the leaves and branches of gain from the practice, enjoyment. Then we may sit and start trying to connect with the present moment, feeling the body, the breath, noticing sounds, thoughts. And maybe we find ourselves thinking about some challenging situation in our life and the various options that are open to us, what to do about it. And because of the stillness and the quiet and our mindfulness, we get a little bit more clarity, a little bit more compassion around the situation. And we find ourselves really connecting with the resolve, the wholesome intention to do the right thing, to find a path of non-harming through the situation. And that's the outer bark of sila, the arising of that wise intention for compassionate action. Then maybe we notice that the mind's kind of wandered off, and we remind ourselves what we're actually here to do. We recommit to awareness, and we start again to notice sounds, sensations, thoughts, feelings. And after a while, we find that the mind is actually settling down. We start to feel calm, relaxed, content. It starts to feel like not too much is going on, and it's really just lovely to just sit here and be in the present moment. That's the inner bark of samadhi, the calming and quieting of the difficult thoughts and emotions. Then at some point, we realize that actually, we're not really quite paying attention anymore, but just kind of hanging out, enjoying the peace and calm of our concentration. So again, we recommit to awareness. We sharpen our attention to really notice and feel intimately all of the passing experiences in our mind and body. We start to really feel just how fleeting they all are, that they don't last even for the briefest moment how they come and go completely beyond our control. And our wisdom and equanimity deepen. That's the sapwood of insight, seeing the deeper nature of our experience. And then maybe as we're sitting quietly, concentrated, 
mindful, equanimous, our mind breaks through to touch an even deeper truth, the deepest understanding of the nature of all of this conditioned experience we call ourself. And we touch the heartwood of the practice, nirvana, nibbana, the unconditioned. And our relationship to ourselves and our life is never the same again. We've attained the first stage of enlightenment. It has to happen sometime. <laughs> But you may be saying to yourself, you know, I'm not really after enlightenment. I don't buy it, it's pie in the sky. Or even if it's possible, I'm not gonna be able to do it. You know, whatever. And the truth is that most of us don't come to this practice really aspiring to liberation, aspiring to enlightenment. Some of, some of us are attracted by the beauty of the retreat center, this chance to be close to nature, or maybe just away from our day-to-day -day stresses. And that's okay if it gets us in the door and on the path. <coughs> Some of us may come looking to develop our sila, looking for ways to live more skillfully and compassionately in the world and in our lives. Many of us come looking for samadhi. You know, we want to relax and, and enjoy some peace and calm. And some of us come looking for insight with the hunger really to understand more deeply the nature of existence and what it means to be a human being. So very few of us in the West come to this practice looking for enlightenment, at least not consciously. We may not feel like what we really need is the heartwood of the practice, and that's okay. It actually doesn't really matter what we think we're after. It's up to each of us to define our own aspiration. But what I've found is that aspiration really tends to be a moving target, that one thing does tend to lead to another. The benefits that we experience from just one of these aspects of the practice tend to whet our appetite, to go deeper with it. As our teacher Upandita says, each moment of awareness moves the yogi one step closer to nirvana, whether they like it or not. <laughs> so this teaching really invites us to consider what else might be possible, whether we might not set our sights a little bit higher than they are at the moment. As Sharon Salzberg says, why not aspire to full enlightenment for the benefit of all beings? What have you got to lose? Why not aspire to full enlightenment? What have we got to lose? Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.